What the hell are musicals? It appears to be a play where the dialogue stops and the plot is conveyed through song. Through song? Yes. Wait, wait. So an actor is saying his lines and then out of nowhere he just starts singing? Yes. Well, that is the stupidest thing that I have ever heard. You're doing a play, got something to say, so you sing it? It's absurd. Who on earth is going to sit there while an actor breaks into song? What possible thought could the audience think other than this is horribly wrong? Remarkably, they won't think that. Seriously? Why not? Because it's a musical, a musical, and nothing's as amazing as a musical with song. Hello and welcome to Broadway Videos, this week on Broadway for Sunday, August 9th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us today, we have a very special guest. Casey Nicklaw is joining us. I have to say that it, it took a pandemic to get Casey on the show because, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you know, we, we've tried various times throughout the years to get to Casey on the show. And Casey, you're just so busy. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you're not busy right now, but mm-hmm. so good morning. And also, you are coming to us from Los Angeles, which is like, you know, oh, dark seven o'clock uh, oh dark seven uh so which is like no man's land in the theater world unless you're coming in from the night before mm-hmm. so uh casey thank you for joining us mm. oh, my pleasure thank you so tell us you know what are you doing these days now that uh well what are you doing in la we're not losing you to the to the to the evil coast are we no well, we, we uh we bought a house here about uh six years ago so so we're here the longest time we've spent out here, but um, it's it's been good. The weather's great, and it's, it just feels like we're a little more isolated. Good. Excellent. Um, and uh, what has been your experience since, uh, since this whole madness has started? Have you been doing any uh, readings uh, of new works or you know, working through what's going to happen when Broadway comes back uh, by Zoom or Skype or Teams? Or how are you doing your work these days? Well, lots, lots of all of the above. I mean, I haven't really done any, any Zoom readings, uh, but lots of... Uh, Lots of sort of, you know, brainstorming and, uh, you know, talking about things and getting uh, development happening on, on new things so that when we come back, maybe we can get some new, uh, new work and I can have some new projects, which would be awesome. <laughs> you, you don't sound like you're uh, at a shortage of, of, of projects. I mean, cer- <laughs> no, certainly. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't stop. I'm just a workaholic. I just love doing it. And I love musical theater so much that I just... Uh, you know, working on things is, is really fun to me. It's like doing puzzles. It's like solving problems. It's figuring things out and it's being creative. And if, if my brain isn't allowed to be creative, I, I feel like I just get, you know, 
I just have too much extra energy. So it's been good to have things to work on. And with people that are fun and enjoyable and that it also provides laughter and humor as you're trying to develop things. So that's a, so that's very important right now. What is, uh, been your road to Broadway? I mean, I, I have to tell you, you are like, uh, it's hard to find information about you on the, on oh, the internet. You, you are, uh, <laughs> you have no social media accounts. You don't have a website and everything like that. Well, it's just yeah. a matter of, uh, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, looking at the obvious places. Uh, IBDB has got a lot of information and uh, various articles on Playbill and Broader World have great, great articles on you. But I don't, I don't really know the history of Casey. Where did you come from? Um, Actually, from out here, I was born in Santa Monica and uh, grew up in San Diego. Uh, and, you know, I was in a when I was growing up, I, would, I got involved in a group called Junior Theater in San Diego. And oh, great. that's how I sort of got excited about it all. You know, a friend of mine said, you know, you should really try out and do this. And so, you know, and whatever it was, 1977, I was a dancing Indian in Annie Get Your Gun. And I was like, <laughs> that's it. I'm in. <laughs> Tell me about the friend. Are you still in touch? Um, you know what? Yeah, actually, we we not like regularly, but uh-huh. but every about about every five ten years, Junior Theater has a reunion, and everybody uh-huh. shows up, and it's uh-huh. really it's it's really cool. You know, and it's one of those things we go like, oh my god, no time has passed, and then you see a picture from that night, you're like, Jesus, who are all those old people? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really. It, it was really great and sort of lifelong friends. And it, that was, that became, because I just didn't really fit in in high school. And that became like my family and, you know, my, my, where I, where I sort of grew up. We have uh, in IBDB that crazy for you is your first Broadway show. How did that come about? It was, um, you know, I'd worked with Susan Stroman on Kiss of the Spider Woman at SUNY Purchase when that oh, was okay. going to launch Spider Woman, which it didn't end up happening there. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, so we had a relationship from that. And uh, she, I, I got it really last minute. Someone dropped out or they made a chorus person the swing instead of being in the chorus and covering Bobby. And so a week before I auditioned for the show and got my first Broadway show. So it was Wonderful. pretty, it was pretty amazing. Well, especially considering the fact that uh, when it opened, Frank Rich gave one of his most enthusiastic reviews ever. So I was at the second performance, and I remember Beth Level exuding, my God, I don't have to look for a job for five years. <laughs> and and you must have felt the same way, you know, thinking, wow, I don't have to worry about my future, uh, not immediately anyway, uh, given that great review in the New York Times. Yeah, and it was really cool because it was completely old school. I mean, I didn't know it was old school then, but now I do. But, um, you know, because they read the review at Sardi's. The whole uh. cast went to Sardi's before <laughs> before we went to the party. We went to Sardi's and they read the review. And it was just, you know, it was like my idea of heaven. I was like sitting there with my parents and Carol Channing was over there. And I thought, you know, I'm, <laughs> oh, my God, how is this possible? <laughs> I note that your next show after that was The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, which was, I guess, a different experience in many ways. It, yeah, it was. It was, it, was, it was funny. I don't think we realized, uh, we realized that it was going to be that because it wasn't, it wasn't unpleasant to work on at all. You know, we all had a good time and we did a, you know, we, we sort of did a run through of Act One at the Nederlander Theater when we were uh, doing a workshop. 
and everyone who came to it was so enthusiastic. And all the, I remember all the dressers who were going to work on the show going, this is going to be huge. <laughs> it was huge, all right. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one story I have from that, you know, the, the set just was so much neon and mirrors and mm-hmm. so gaudy because it was trying to be Vegas. Um, and I think it was so sort of distracting. But I'll never forget looking down because there was, there was so much light that you could see the audience all the time, which was maybe not the best thing. And there was a woman who was just sitting in the front row, looking at the mirror and the apron, just putting on her lipstick while we were all doing the show. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Now um, it's funny. You mentioned San Diego because of course you were at La Jolla with thoroughly modern Millie, I assume, right? You No, I didn't. I I Ah. didn't go to Broadway. I see. All right. You know, it was great fun uh, seeing you in the reunion um, a couple of years <laughs> ago uh, because I, I didn't know you were in the show when uh, when it opened way back when. And then there I am watching the show and I said, wait a minute, isn't that Casey Nicola? And <laughs> and it was so great to see you having such a good time doing it. Um, and it reminded me of a scene in Working, the musical Working, where indeed um, a professional hockey player talked about going home and there was a patch of ice on the street and he just skated for fun back and forth that must have been a blast for you going back and doing Millie after what's happened to you in your career yeah it, it really it really was fun and and the, that was such a great cast and so many fun people and it was it was really terrific and I've kept in touch with I've seen so many of them still uh it, it was really awesome Casey we don't normally uh do this in fact we've we've never done this before but uh, Peter I want you to ask Casey last week's trivia question Yes. What do these musicals, all of which got a Tony Norma too, have in common? <laughs> the Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, Crazy for You, Saturday Night Fever, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Susical, Steel Pier, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Victor Victoria. Oh, gee. That's that was my question. But maybe I was in them. <laughs> <laughs> right. The answer officially is Casey Nicola, now a Tony winning director and six time Tony nominee for best choreographer, was a performer in each, having everything from very small roles to ensemble assignments. Shall we all sing a chorus of It's Not Where You Start, It's Where You Finish? <laughs> <laughs> Casey, Casey, I have to say that. Uh, uh, that the list of musicals that you've been involved with have been consistently some of our favorites here at Broadway Radio, and we keep going back over and over to Something Rotten. Uh, tell us how you got involved with Something Rotten. Oh, that was really that was a really fun one. Um, well, it was just Kevin McCollum, you know, because we had a relationship from Drowsy Chaperone, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, "I really have something I think you're going to love," and. I met with uh, Carrie and Wayne and then met John O'Farrell and I just thought it was such a fun idea. And then we started working on it and putting it together. I mean, when, when I first met with the guys, they only had like four songs and, you know, one scene. And then they sort of told me the outline and the idea of it. And we just like created it as we went together through the whole process. And that was probably four or five years. Wow. Um, in fact, was one of the numbers that they had way back when a musical? Actually, um, yes, except that it wasn't what you, what you ended up hearing. It was very, uh, I had sort of forgotten the story, but Carrie and Wayne told it when we were doing uh, press for the show. But it was very much like a man with a lute just going, a musical, a musical. There's nothing <laughs> like a musical. And I was like, no, no, no. You got to. <laughs> we want this to be show busy. <laughs> and 
and that's that's how, sort of how it happened. And then you know, Glenn Kelly started you know arranging it, and then he he started putting all of the references to shows in there. And I I was like, I don't know about this. It feels like it might just be a little too much. And then everyone I was doing pre-production with started saying, no, we love that part. You can't like get rid of that. That's going to be what it needs to be. So it just, it's funny. It just started developing. And I think that's the fun of developing a new show is just everyone creating and inspiring and, and, you know, working off each other. So I think that's really, it's, it's really fun to do. Well, it got my favorite type of applause where people applaud like crazy and mm. then the applause abates and the audience doesn't want it to end and they make the applause even higher yeah. than it was the first time. And I saw the show on Broadway four times and oh that God. happened every time, each yeah, and every it's, time. It's, pr- it's pretty, that's pretty cool. I have to say that's, that's, that was one of the most exciting responses for a number that and, well, it happened twice in a row, actually, with that and Friend Like Me and, and Aladdin. The fact mm-hmm. that the two of them mm-hmm. sort of did the same thing, I just couldn't believe it, you know? And there's nothing like sitting there and 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 sitting there with the people you helped, you know, with, with like the associate director and the associate choreographer and all of us just going, this is so satisfying and so gratifying because we worked so hard and we also know what it started as. And we were all together when, you know, I'm sitting on the floor just with my eyes closed, listening to the music over and over to try to picture what it's going to look like. Uh, so, yeah, pretty, pretty wild. Casey, aside from everything else you've done, uh, one of my favorites, uh, I guess, uh, not, unfortunately, not that many people got to see it uh, because it only ran, I guess, six performances, but not because it was a flop, but because it was an encore production of The Most Happy Fella, oh. which was so beautiful. Uh, 2014, Laura Benanti. Schuler Hensley, Cheyenne Jackson, Heidi Blickenstaff, Jay Armstrong Johnson, Jessica Malaski. And I remember, you know, I remember someone saying, I don't remember who it was, I guess it was in the talk back, that um, when you were casting, you said to the casting director uh, or uh, I want you to get me the warmest group of people <laughs> in, in, uh, in New York theater. And it was, you know, that's absolutely what you ended up with. It was so wonderful. Oh, thank you. I absolutely love that show. It's always been one of my favorites. And uh, I was so, uh, so, so thrilled to do it. And I was just a, a bawling mess every night that we saw it. You know, it was, it's so funny too, because it was one of my, one of my favorite, like, moving to New York experiences because I had mm. like no, I had no money. And, and I um, went to Lincoln center library and I never heard, I never really heard the music of most happy fella. And, you know, they had like a, I forget a three record set or a four That's record right. set. Three, three, three. Yeah. And um, I just sat there with, with takeout Chinese food and listened to the whole thing and was like, <laughs> it was such a such a great night for me. I was in New York and I was able to, you know, had all these resources and stuff. So, yeah, that's how it all sort of started. And I thought, I just love this. How did I not know it before? Uh, I also um, am curious about your interaction with Dame Edna um, during that uh, show All About Me. Um, I remember interviewing Dame Edna and it's, it, it, she was hilarious beyond belief. So um, <laughs> it, was that the experience while working with Dame Edna as well? <laughs> It absolutely was. It absolutely was. You know, the show didn't run very long, but oh my gosh, it was so much fun. And, you know, I came on very, I came on very late to it. I I came, I came on, 
like three weeks, like like three weeks before we were starting rehearsals, and there wasn't mm-hmm. a script or anything yet. And then, in three weeks later, we were performing it, and it was um, but it was absolutely a blast the whole time. I just was laughing so hard. <laughs> I wanted to ask you uh, in uh, two thousand four, you're uh, two thousand two through two thousand four, you're doing thoroughly modern Millie. And your next job uh, was Spamalot, where you made the transition from a performer to the uh, choreography role. So uh, had you planned to do this? Uh, Was this in your master plan, or was this something that happened by chance, or how did that come about? all of the above, it was what I wanted the master plan to be. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. at that point, at that point, it's it sort of started. I know I've told this story before, but it sort of started when I was in Susical. And um, you know, I was sitting, I was sitting in a cage in a purple yarn suit and uh <laughs> thinking, I just want to I just want to do something else. I need to be more creative. And it was nothing against Susical because I love that show and I love the score and I loved the people. Um but I rented studio space between shows Wednesdays and Saturdays. And I thought, I'm just going to be creative. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just think I want to do something else because most of the shows I was in were original shows. So I got to watch how they were put together. And um, about week three of being in this, in the studio, I, I was like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to, I suddenly got inspired and I uh, choreographed three numbers and I got 25 dancer friends. And then we, I did a presentation just for every writer and producer and director I'd worked with. And they came. And then Kevin McCollum gave me a job at the Fifth Avenue uh, in Ordway, uh, choreographing a new musical version of Prince and the Pauper. Uh, and that's that's sort of how it started. And then, you know, I ended up uh, helping out with uh, Can Can at Encores for Lonnie Price. He was nice enough to let me sort mm. of be a part of that. And then from there, I ended up doing Bye Bye Birdie. And that's when... Uh, Mike Nichols called Jerry Zachs and said, what about this guy? Uh, and that's kind of how it happened. I went to Mike's apartment. He knew nothing about my work. I had my my reel with me. I had my resume and he didn't look at anything. We just talked for an hour. And then he said, so you want the job? And that's, <laughs> that was it. Cut to me, like, you know, sobbing in the elevator on the way down sure. afterward going, oh, my God. <laughs> um, so it was it. That was it. And that's how it happened. <laughs> That's great. So you have a list, uh, you know, following Millie, we just talked about Spamalot, then Drowsy Chaperone, All About Me, Elf, The Book of Mormon, Aladdin, Something Rotten, Tuck Everlasting, Mean Girls, and The Prom. These all have shows that have uh, uh, just incredible humor involved with them at at different points. Where Was comedy something that was uh, always existed in your life or was it something that has developed? Huh. I, I think I've always loved to laugh. I mean, musicals were more my life than comedy growing mm-hmm. up, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I was always loving to laugh and, and, you know, as, as, you know, sort of an escape just from, you know, being poor and all everything else that, you know, was going on in, in our life. And we had a, had a great family, but, um, but you know there was there were not were not a lot of resources and it I, it felt like being part of theater was something more and I just absolutely loved it. But then yeah, I started developing my humor when um, like in my early twenties, I think you know really as sort of a self deprecating kind of thing because I was losing my hair at twenty one and I didn't know how to deal with it and people people who I hadn't seen in a while would like you know 
see me and just talk to the top of my head. And so I'd have to make <laughs> jokes about it. I have to make jokes about it first. And uh, then I think I just started developing it. And I just got to, I felt like I really fit in and my humor was able to soar. When you were growing up uh, out on the West Coast, did you think that, uh, you, you said that musicals were a big part of your life, but did you think you were going to end up in the entertainment sphere? Or did you think that uh, what yes, we should have something to fall back on? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I didn't, you know, I, no, that's all I, I knew. That's what I wanted to do. And that's the business I wanted to be in. And, and there was, there was like no other path or interest for me. Um, and, you know, I was going was to- Was the family uh, supportive? Uh, very, very supportive. They didn't, you know, I went to UCLA. Um, I wasn't, I, you know, we couldn't afford for me to go to a, a, sort of a more of a specialty school that like had a good program. So I went to UCLA and there was no musical theater program. So, and, you know, as a theater major, you couldn't take voice or dance because it was too crowded. And so I I basically, you know, moved to New I mean, I I- saved my money as an assistant manager of a movie theater and um, went to New York on spring break. And I just, you know, I have no idea how I knew I went and got a backstage. I went to colony and got music. I oh, colony had, I had no resume or anything. And I auditioned for shows and I got some callbacks and I ended up getting a summer stock gig at new London barn playhouse. <laughs> and that was it. I was completely hooked. I dropped out of UCLA. I'm, you know, moved to New York with 50 bucks and nowhere to live and stayed on all my new friends' couches. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was it. And then waited at a lot of tables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, uh, where do you fall in your family? Oldest, youngest, in the middle? Uh, oldest. oldest. Oldest of three. Blazing mm-hmm. trails for the other two? Um, <laughs> no, they have <laughs> no desire <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was sort of a loudmouth and bossy and... Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was, it's very, very hard to be in that shadow. <laughs> hmm. So, wow. uh, <laughs> how did, um, you know, working with uh, Disney and Aladdin, was that your first time you worked for Disney? Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love working with them. They're, they're really great and they're so supportive of their casts. And it, it really, it's really been a fantastic collaboration and experience. Was it a, a different process uh, working with Disney than you've experienced in your, in your previous shows because of being so corporate oriented? No, actually, cause it, it didn't feel, it really didn't feel like that. And if so, they, they kept a lot of that a, away from me. You know, they really let me work on the show. I mean, it was, it was a it was a tricky one. I won't lie, and I know we talked about it when that was happening too, because we went to Toronto, uh, out of town, and it just was not working. It wasn't, and you know we, we, you know the, the whole sort of plan and the thing that was inspiring to us is we were going to restore a lot of uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken's material that was cut from the movie, oh. uh, mm-hmm. including you know these three characters, Babcock, Omar, and Kasim, which originally were going to narrate the whole movie. And um, then they ended up cutting that. And now we know why, because we ended up cutting it too. Because <laughs> in Toronto, they were, you know, in between scenes, they would come out in front of this of this stage and they would narrate the show. And it was really fun music and it was really buoyant and it was funny, um, but it just didn't work. And then we were caught with, okay, that's great. But if we cut all that, how are we going to change the sets? 
<laughs> because that was what, you know, so mm. it just was a lot of dominoes. But we we rewrote about a third of the show between Toronto and New York. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It ended up, you know, we had to, we just had to adjust a lot of, a lot of stuff in order to change the sets. So we were a little, uh, beholden to that because all like all of the palace scenes used to happen on a full stage and then we ended up having to get a new drop and do everything in one while we were changing the set behind and it ended up working out fine um but yeah it was really a fun one to work on and it was really cool to come to new york and have it be a success so um you mentioned toronto and we have uh the drowsy chaperone which uh, started up started up there uh, now, the Drowsy Chaperone has so much of a different feel. I mean, it uh, it was a much-beloved uh, show on Broadway, but it, it's not a big, glitzy uh, show like uh, you know, Spamalot or, or uh, Book of Mormon or Aladdin or Mean Girls of the Prom. Uh, you know, w- when you're working on a different show that that's, uh, that's like that, how did you... Um, how did you approach that in so far as trying to tell the story to get the audience engaged? Well, I mean, it just was, it was just so funny and it was so much fun. I mean, I think that's probably my favorite experience just because it was my first directing gig on Broadway. And it was also, it was a first for so many of us. And we just loved the piece so much. Um, You know, when they did it originally in Toronto, it was, um, you know, it was just sort of a sketch. It was done with six doors and it was just really sort of a spoof slash Valentine to the period. Uh, so it didn't, even though it had man and chair, it didn't have the elements, the physical elements of an apartment. And that's what we thought would be cool. And that's what, that's what I was like, you know, what if we do this in an apartment and what if we interrupt things? And what if, what if his world just keeps disappearing into more musical theater as the show goes on? Um, yeah, again, it, it's just, it just was a real collaboration. And we didn't even, you know, we didn't, as you go, like the ending is so moving to me. And that was just a an idea from one of the creators said, hey, what about if we do this? And everyone was like, hmm, I'm not sure. And then Glenn Kelly sort of put it together and it worked so beautifully. I, I just love that show. It was such a great experience for all of us. So is there a little man in chair in you? Oh my gosh, there's a big man in chair. <laughs> There was a boy in chair in me from the very beginning. Uh-huh. You see my walls as a teenager. It was just covered with every show and show posters and lobby cards of musicals. And couldn't you couldn't see the wall. Yes, all our apartments looked alike. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> our bedrooms, I should say. Yeah. Did, uh, did Man in Chair make a little bit of an appearance in Something Rotten? You um, know, Rob McClure pulled out oh, a dress. Yeah, he, he did, yes. <laughs> so, one of our listeners, uh, Rob Johnston, uh, mentioned that was one of his favorite parts of <laughs> of uh, something rotten was when Rob McClure pulls out the Drazzy Chaperone cast recording from his chair in something rotten. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah, and we had to we had to cut it for the tour because there was no room for a chair in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the adaptations that we make. <laughs> well, uh, so what's coming up for you? Do you have anything that you can talk about? I know there's probably a lot of things coming up, but uh, anything? Yeah, um, yeah, the one the one I can totally talk about is uh, "Some Like It Hot," a new version of "Some Like It Hot," which is sort of next on the agenda. We did a lab of it in January and uh, you know, 
timelines. Who knows what time we yeah. thought we had a timeline, but uh, who knows anything anymore um, sure. about that? But it's, mm-hmm. it will be coming to Broadway soon, and I'm very excited about it. Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman have uh, done the score, and Matthew Lopez is writing the book. And it's, I've heard of all of them. Mm-hmm. It's really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> Casey, can we ask about if you've seen any of or all of the movie of the prom? Um, yeah, I was there choreographing it, so uh, I've seen I've seen quite a bit of oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. It was it was fun. It was really it was it was a, a cool thing to work on. It was it was fun to uh, you know in in New York, you know, with the opening scene takes place, you know, in the Rainbow Room, and of course in in a Broadway stage version of Rainbow Room, there's, you know, three tables and <laughs> two waiters that also double as teenagers. But uh, it was really fun to to do the movie and have it be at Sardi's with 10 waiters and 125 mm. party guests. And to really realize uh, everything was really fun. Mm. <laughs> well, Casey, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us at Broadway Radio. Uh I, I, it's, it's only 7.30 a.m. there. Yeah, go uh, back to sleep, that? yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. I, I, love, I love doing this, and I, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, when some like it, uh, when some like it hot, uh, when some like, I can't it. get the words, <laughs> I can't get the words out. When some Just say sugar. Like, yeah. When <laughs> sugar comes. <laughs> when it comes to Broadway, come on back and uh, visit with us again, okay? Absolutely, I would love to. Why are we dancing? Our dreams are in tatters. Yes, yes, but the tune is so infectious. Oh, Robert. Oh. This is the saddest day of my life. It's really great to have uh, Casey spend some time with us, and uh, uh, you know we've been trying forever to get him on. So it's really wonderful that we were able to uh, get him on. But Peter, we still have some unfinished business. We got the uh, answer to last week's trivia question. So uh, who's going to be on next week? Well, uh, let's. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll tell you who may very well answer the questions next week because they seem to do it virtually every week um, because the uh, people who got it this past week were Steve Bell, the first, followed by Paul Witte, Joanna Abizi, Tony Janicki, losing another notch to fourth place, <laughs> Sean Logan, Ingrid Gammerman, Brigadoo, Josh Israel, and right under the wire, Richard Carey. As for next week's question, when did Peter Allen and Robert Klein worked together on Broadway and on what show? Hmm. It's going to be very hard to get Peter Allen. Yes, uh, I suppose. Peter Allen and Robert Klein for next week's show, but I'll work on it. Okay. <laughs> By <laughs> the way, I, I, I'm, I was happy that one of the correct respondents to your last question kind of explained how he did it because I, <laughs> I'm frequently amazed by how these people do it. Um, especially, I, say, I mean, you didn't say that the thing that all of those shows had in common was a cast member. No, 
Yeah, it could have been anything. It could sure. have been a, a you know a line. A yeah, have, right, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm really quite impressed. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. God love all these wonderful, smart, and um, energetic people. Yeah, and good looking. I'm sure. Good looking I'm sure. People, yeah. all of them. <laughs> I, I haven't met all of them, but uh, yes, I trust. We, we only allow our listeners to be the best looking. <laughs> only the best looking people. So uh, we thought about talking about. Um, Best first act closers for uh, a little bit of our discussion this week. So, Peter, do you want to uh, tell us, in your opinion, what are some of the best first act closers? I imagine virtually everybody would tell you, and I am telling you I am not going from uh, Dreamgirls. Yeah. And um, I, I saw the tryout in Boston. I had moved here by that point, but uh, I was back in Boston to see a friend's uh, community theater production of King of Hearts, believe it or not. And um, so I went to the Schubert. And this was the first time I ever saw a standing ovation during a number and uh, Jennifer Holliday did get that um, while she was singing and I am telling you I am not going a lot of people have an issue I know uh, with the fact that at the end of the song suddenly you see uh, the dreams come out and start singing Um, I have heard so many people feel that's anticlimactic but I don't think it is Um, I think it's really a wonderful idea to have that as part of the uh, first act curtain Um, I also remember when a friend of mine uh, was called into the office of his superior and he was told he was fired and he came out and somebody was already sitting at his desk and he said I felt like (laughs) Jennifer Holliday and Dreamgirls I was already replaced Mm -hmm. Um, so so I think it's a very effective uh, first that curtain, uh, not just because of the song, but also because of that device. So, Michael, what is uh, one of your best first act closers? Well, I, of course, thought of Dreamgirls also, and we had sure. discussed it not long ago, but I also it also occurred to me that Dreamgirls is one of um, several musicals I can think of where there's a major, very sudden shift in tone or mood in the very last moments of Act One. Um, another example is MAME, which we've discussed before. Mm. The, the huge number, the huge joyous title song with all of these people singing in praise of MAME. Then it ends, there's an ovation, and then there's a little, I guess, maybe like a, a little spot comes up on young Patrick, mm-hmm. who's forgotten in all of this. And mm-hmm. he sings a little bit of My Best Girl, and he's you know, he's got tears in his eyes, and and so he thinks he's losing his aunt. Um, but then, uh, in that case, then it does go back to a very brief reprise of the end of the title song. Um, another example of what I'm talking about is "Promises, Promises." Uh, mm. It uh, you've got turkey lurkey time, tremendous showstopper. Big dance number, uh, you know, lots of energy and, and joy and happiness on stage. And then after that, there's a little moment where uh, the, the lead, Chuck Baxter, finds out that the girl he's in love with is actually involved with um, the boss. And mm-hmm. he knows that, you know, first of all, he's in love with her. Um, so that's he's sorry for that reason. But also he I think he knows that that's not going to end well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that little moment. But then there again, that goes back to a very brief uh, reprise of Turkey Lurkey time. And then um, so many other examples. Rent, you have La Vie Bohème. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of this joy, all this happiness. Then there's a you know very, very 
sensitively and smartly, there's a little shift to a very intimate moment between Roger and Mimi, uh, you know, where they're really, really, really bonding and really falling in love. And then back to a little bit of, um, of lovey bohem. So uh, that seems to be uh, something that, that several writers have hit on as a, as a way to uh, end the first act on a, you know, with, with a lot of drama and uh, to get the audience really anticipating what's going to happen after intermission. Well, I remember being at the Boston Triad with MAME and um, the joy that was happening during the MAME number uh, as the first act was coming to an end. And I remember then the little boy came forward and started singing My Best Girl. And I was so ashamed that I had forgotten all about him. <laughs> ashamed. Yeah. You know, and I wish that were on the album, frankly. I, in a way, I understand why it's not, but I really think it should be because it really would be very indicative of what's going on. Of course, uh, one of the all-time greats is um, Everything's Coming Up Roses because um, there's a part of us that really does believe that Rose is going to give up, that she's going to feel that uh, there's no sense in going on now that June is gone. And Herbie makes a good case. You know, I, I, I'm in, I can go back to the business. I, 52 weeks a year, it's, it's solid, so on and so forth. Our daughter will have a home, so on and so forth. And, um, and for her to completely change her mind about Louise and thinking she can make something of Louise when she really knows she can't, but the thing is, she just does not want to give up that show business dream. Um, it's just too much for her. And to sing that um, amazing and courageous song makes for an astonishing first act, Curtin. <laughs> so um, uh, has the first act uh, closer changed, in your opinion, over, over the years? I think that there are just different ways to do it. And, and uh, it seems to me that I, I suppose, you know, variations on those few different ways have been, uh, you know, done over and over again, but and sometimes, you know, very creatively. Well, certainly uh, Phantom <laughs> did it very differently. Uh, it had less to do with uh, what was happening on stage than what was happening in the house. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, people always complain about the uh, movie of Phantom, but I really do believe moving the chandelier to the end of the show makes perfect sense. Um, so, uh, but it is a tremendously effective first act curtain, um, uh, though it has less to do with um, <laughs> the creativity of um, what people are singing or saying than it has to do with that um, coming down. Though, you know, I mean, I, I it's amazing to me. Um, I remember hearing at the time when Phantom was being readied in London back in 1986 that Hal Prince was so disappointed that he couldn't get the chandelier to come down faster. And, um, and yes. I'm, you know, yes. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised what he didn't think of doing was um, having everybody on stage move in slow motion. I think that really would have been a very effective thing since the chandelier was essentially moving in slow motion. Hmm. So I think um, that would have happened. But nevertheless, um, the show has done awfully well uh, despite that uh, not happening. But uh, but uh, that that is a, a really effective uh, first act curtain, needless to say. Well, I also think, and I may have said this, that what would be most effective is if the chandelier were uh, placed, say, uh, over, directly over the first few rows of the orchestra, and if there was some way that it could fall directly down. Uh, mm. But I assume that uh, you know they think that the potential hazards would be just so great that they didn't want to attempt it, unless they did it as a projection. 
Mm-hmm. But then it, but you know, uh, I mean, it would have to look really realistic. Otherwise, it wouldn't probably make any effect at all. Uh, but that, that occurred to me that that might have been uh, another way to do it. And then everyone could on stage could have like pointed at it. Oh my God, look at this. <laughs> and then, so then even the people in the front rows of the orchestra would have looked up you know directly mm-hmm. up <laughs> and then you know it starts to fall and the lights go out that would have been amazing with uh, social distancing now and the yeah. first row of the theater being 25 feet from the stage you can drop a chandelier in, in between the stage it, yes. and the <laughs> <laughs> good point good point so uh, what about uh, first act closers that foreshadow the second act? And then I think about, um, I, I think about Into the Woods and how, <laughs> is that really a foreshadowing or? <laughs> it's, it's irony. Yeah. It, it certainly is. And, uh, and you may have heard the stories that uh, 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 during the first few previews, um, people assumed the show was over at the end of the first act since they were all talking about a hap- people living happily yeah. ever after in the ending to the point at which they had to have Tom Aldridge um, playing the narrator uh, <laughs> say to be continued so the people would stay, um, especially in this era where shows are uh, shorter than they used to be so um so yes that's uh, that's a very good point about that um you know the other thing too um some are really awkward um 42nd street after um dorothy brock is injured um julian marsh comes out and says all right that's it you know take down the curtain and i i still remember at every audience i ever saw at 42nd street there's this strange nervous feeling of has it ended? Can I get up and go to the bathroom now? Or is there going to be more? I mean, it was, it was a very awkward ending, but it was the right ending to have because it indicated the type of chaos <clears throat> that was going to happen. Hmm. So, uh, Peter, what other uh, first act closers do you want to talk about? Well, um, when you talk about um, the idea that uh, something's coming, something's good, um, the producers um, gave that opinion. Uh, You know, it it wasn't the most dynamic first act curtain, but it did whet your appetite because you really want to see what springtime for Hitler was going to be. (laughs) And what was really smart about um, one of the smartest things about the producers, and God knows I have issues with the producers, but nevertheless, one of the smartest issues about the producers, smartest decisions, was to expand springtime for Hitler. In the movie, of course, it's simply one production number, but uh, it's a it's a bunch of scenes in the musical, and uh, we didn't see that coming by the end of the first act curtain. But boy, uh, with that very very enthusiastic uh, first act curtain ending, we certainly were looking forward to seeing whatever springtime for Hitler would be. Hmm. Cabaret too was another one where um, you know uh, so musical theater is so smart in showing you joy beyond belief followed by a quick tragedy. And certainly Cabaret has that. There we are at the party and everybody's having such a good time. And then uh, the Nazi influence comes in at the end. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Everybody's having Mm -hmm. such a wonderful time at the wedding. Mm -hmm. Everybody um, is now dancing together, which they hadn't done before. I mean, you know, everybody is finding a freedom that they've never had before. And what happens? We've been warned. We've been told that there was going to be an incident. There was a little mischief, as the uh, constable Mm, said. Mm. And there was more than just a little. And imagine, imagine on your wedding day having people come in, disrupt and destroy what uh, the gifts and all that goes with that. Can you imagine Mm. what a wedding day that would be like? And I'd like to think that that's never happened to anybody, but I'm not sure that that's the case. 
Uh, Rob Johnston brought up in the chat the uh, If I Can't Love Her being added to Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about the uh, adaptations from films to stage that uh, where they have to find a way to, you know, create an intermission uh, sure. for, for some way. Uh, and I agree with Rob. I, I really love uh, the song, If I Can't Love Her. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, Ethan Wood made a very good point about um, the uh, Gypsy and The Sound of Music both opened the same year. and um, And, of course, at first glance they have nothing in common uh they're very different shows <laughs> and yet as he points out at the end of the first act there's an older woman telling a younger woman to go out and meet her fate and it's really true i mean because not only is rose telling louise that she's going to be a star but also uh there's the mother superior telling maria go back marry the guy marry the man today and um and that's a very effective um as well you know i often wondered though when critics saw um the sound of music in 1959 and they heard climb every mountain uh, did they say oh this is such a retread of you'll never walk alone which was only 14 years earlier mm-hmm. i've often wondered about that i've never heard anybody say that um but another first act closer that's really quite wonderful about a woman deciding to meet her fate on her own she doesn't need any advice in fact she's not taking anybody's advice is uh, fanny bryce singing don't rain on my parade at the end of uh, funny girl even on stage without a tugboat that uh, song worked magnificently well and certainly barbara streisand was one of the reasons why well, speaking of the sound of music, yeah, it's interesting to look at how uh, a particular team of writers handled the end of Act One in different shows. Oklahoma, of course, the the, the famous epic-making dream ballet, uh, Magnus DeMille. But um, there's a little bit of a, a tag to that. You at, bet. At, after it's over. You didn't see it in the revival, but yes, you're right. Go on. Go on. No. They didn't have enough stage at Circle. Is that what it was? As written. As written. Thank you, yes. Peter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After it's over, uh, Laurie's been puzzling over what to do, and Judge shows up and is ready to take her to the box social and that's the end of act one and she yeah when she realizes what trouble she's in you know yes. it's all been very nice to do all this cock teasing between these two guys but look now mm. here and now uh, the piper must be paid she yes. really has to go with this guy and she's scared to death of him yeah so um talking about joy being followed by um you know, immense uh differences of uh, guys mm. and dolls too where um there there's Sarah having had a wonderful time in Havana. Here she is, a guy saying, I've never been in love before. Oh, my God, you know, everything's working out so well. And then suddenly she realizes that uh, the mission has been used as a place for gambling. And she suspects the sky had something to do with that, which he really didn't. But, um, but she goes from immense happiness all the way to becoming Sarah Brown again, the mission doll, so to right. speak. Um, and it's a very, very effective first act ending. Peter just... <clears throat> Peter just mentioned something's coming and which leads us to West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have ended Act One with the Tonight Ensemble uh, and sure. then started Act Two with the Rumble. Mm-hmm. But I think um, 
they made absolutely the right decision. And somehow it's even more shocking uh, to send the audience out to intermission with two dead bodies on stage mm, and, and, mm. and this terrible tragedy having happened. Um, interestingly, I think it was only in uh, the initial uh, roadshow release of West Side Story that the movie had an intermission. And it's in um, kind of an odd place. It's after the war council quote unquote, between the Jets and the Sharks. And then uh, there's a little scene between Tony and Doc where uh, Doc first learns that that Tony's in love with a Puerto Rican girl and he has a terrible sense of foreboding. And Tony uh, walks off dreamily down the street in the dark and uh, there's a very, very uh, soft uh, orchestral reprise of Maria, I believe, and there's a fade out, and that's the end of the first half, uh, the first part of the movie of West Side Story. I, I think maybe they um, they just really had to think about that for a while and and decide where they could put uh, an intermission that that was somewhere uh, near halfway, and I, and I, clearly they didn't want to do it after. The rumble, but uh, that was probably partly because some of the songs had shifted position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so especially it, because I, yeah, I right. feel pretty is um, not in the same place. Right, exactly. That makes a very effective second act opening, which is another story. Annie Get Your Gun is often criticized for um, having the number "I'm an Indian too," and there's always this talk about should it be dropped. I'm amazed it wasn't dropped back in 1946 because <laughs> to me the first act is over when Frank Butler walks out on her. To have that number to follow is is just uh, superfluous to me. So it it isn't. Um, it shouldn't have been in the first place. It's a totally unnecessary number. And it really, the idea of the curtain coming down with Frank being jealous that Annie has her own um, uh, display at the, uh, at the um, show, uh, that's what drives him crazy that she's become a star and she may be eclipsing him because way down deep, he knows that she's a better shot than he is as good as he is. So uh, to me, that's the end of the first act. And I don't want to see that number um, at all because of that reason. Uh, Peter, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, y- you know, uh, I, I, I certainly am not saying that I know more than the, the folks of the most successful musical on Broadway, Hamilton, but I, I feel like Yorktown should have been the end of Act 1 and Nonstop should have been the beginning of Act 2. Uh, hmm. and, and, I understand that point of view. Because I really feel like uh, the world turned upside down, the world, you know, and that big, huge, uh, you know, uh, for lack, uh, it's not what we t- typically think of as a production number, but it, it is a huge, Yorktown is a huge number with sure. everybody involved and they, they, they cover a lot of story ground and everything and it ends, uh, it, it feels to me like Yorktown should be the end of Act One and nonstop should be the beginning of Act Two. But uh, uh, it's interesting what you're saying about Annie Get Your Gun as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see your point entirely, and I don't disagree with it. Um, 
Ironically enough, um, I just thought of something that refers to something else entirely. I, I belong to a group that meets every week, and we give an assignment of uh, the 10 whatevers. And uh, this week's assignment is um, the 10 best lines that come from uh, Broadway shows. And I've already made my list, but now I just thought of another one because of Kiss Me Kate. Because at the end of, ending of Kiss Me Kate, um, we see uh, Fred uh, spanking uh, Lily. And that brings up a great line in the second act where she says, call an ambulance. Well, you know, you don't need an ambulance when you've been spanked. But I mean, it just is a wonderful way of showing how overly dramatic, what a drama queen she is. You know, call an ambulance. Um, you know, so it's uh, so that may replace one of uh, my 10 greatest lines from Broadway musicals where I already had 13 and I had to whittle it down. But that brings up another one that I just love dearly. Um, the pajama game. Again, there once was a man who loved the woman. I love you more. I love you more. But don't forget, this is labor and management. And uh, there we are. You know, uh, babe uh, doesn't is, is upset. She's not getting that seven and a half cent raise uh, cent raise. And um, and she purposely sabotages and he has to fire her, the woman he loves. So, uh, so that's a very dramatic first act curtain. I think that's um, quite fine. Of course, some of the best musicals I've ever seen have had no first act curtains, um, uh, everything from a chorus line hmm. um, to 1776. When I saw it, there was no intermission. I know that they put one in. And um, supposedly, um, both 1776 and Man of La Mancha, um, this is legend. I'm not sure if it's true, but I used to hear at the time the reason um, they didn't have intermission is because when they did have intermissions early on, people were walking out because they didn't like the shows that much. And the feeling was if we could keep them in their seats, they'd be glad they stayed. And the way to keep them in their seats was to have no intermission. So I don't know if that's true, but of course, Mama Look Sharp and Impossible Dream tend to be where the intermissions are in those shows. But a chorus line in Grand Hotel, two of my all-time favorites, uh, certainly don't have an intermission, and it makes perfect sense that they don't, because uh, in chorus line, well, you want the uh, the tension to build um, by uh, not having that inter um, that audition interrupted at all. And in Grand Hotel, life goes on. So that's yeah. one of the big concepts of the show. So uh, so that has a big factor as well. So Jenna Tessa Fox is in our chat room, and she brought up the Cakewalk and Parade. Ah, very good point. Very good point indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, boy, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, I was, I was thinking of something else at Parade the other day. Again, how I love that song, All the Wasted Time, because when yeah. I saw it in the playbill, I thought it was going to be, you know, all this wasted time in prison. And it turned out to be something very different. But that's the second act thing. And that's for another day. I'll grant you. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched uh, someone posted a video of, um, <laughs> the wonderful late great Brent Carver and mm. Carolee Carmelo doing that mm. song on the Rosie mm. O'Donnell show. Oh, did they? And mm. it was quite extraordinary. I didn't. Mm. I'm. I'm not sure. I remembered that they did that, or if, or if I saw it at the time. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow! Should have asked uh, Casey about uh, Spider Woman if Brent was. Uh, in, involved in that purchase uh, no he wasn't no yeah, I, didn't think, I didn't think so no um and um <clears throat> so uh it, it, it's amazing that that um show continued um it, it it was totally redesigned and um you know you really have to give them credit for for doing a redesign as as amazingly different uh as it turned out to be and it really the design of that show really helped that show to succeed it just did not look like the same show at purchase i did see it there 
Um, just as I talked about um, some weeks ago about how the woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown in London was so completely redesigned from the the Broadway one. And again, it was Bartlett's share again, but uh, obviously he knew what had gone wrong with the Broadway production. So you really got to give people credit for saying, let's go back to square one. You know, so it's, um, it's a really important thing to uh, be able to do that because so many, I mean, so many of the Boston tryouts I saw, you could tell the people were saying, oh, we're fine. We don't, nah, it's all right. It'll all work out. Nah, when we get to New York, they're going to love it. No, they didn't. And, um, and they can't be expected to given what it was. So, uh, so really you have to really, uh, applaud the people who go back to square one. Hmm. Um, any words about Brent Carver? He was very nice to me um, during the Drama Desk Awards in 1993. Of course, uh, one could say, well, you know, he knew he had won. In those mm-hmm. days, um, for, for whatever reason, um, the Drama Desk um, would announce their winners well in advance. And I, you know, it, it, was, it was amazing to me how when the, at the ceremony, when the winner was announced, people would scream as if they didn't know it before. But, uh, but anyway, he was very, very nice uh, to me. We had a nice long chat. What's so effective, though, about all the um, things memorializing him, I saw so much about his Tevya in Fiddler yeah. up in Canada, where people said he had a completely different interpretation that worked wonders. And um, I, I would love to know what that is like. And I've been meaning to go on YouTube to see if there's even if I were a rich man, because maybe that would tell me something. Um, so that's something I'm going to have to do and hope to find something. But uh, but that's the one that really intrigued me. But of course, we didn't get to see much of Brent Carver here. But our Canadian um, neighbors certainly did. And uh, he, he was truly um, a superstar up there. And um, it, it's in a way, it's nice that he was uh, loyal to his co- country. I mean, a lot of people have said, no, no, it's got to be Broadway and nothing. Um, that he continued to work up there uh, where, uh, at least ostensibly, he would have gotten more money here, wouldn't he? Uh, I don't know, maybe not. But um, I would think he would. And it was nice that he was just loyal to his country and continued um doing that he was uh he passed away in the same town in which he was born really very very few people do that but he talked about his his uh affinity so much for this uh cranbrook uh which is a town up in canada that he uh, grew up in he had uh four uh broadway productions kiss the spider woman parade king lear and romeo and juliet um but as uh which surprised me because I was thinking, oh no, he must have had you know ten, fifteen Broadway credits, and but we we did see him so little on Broadway yeah, in comparison yeah, to yeah. what his reputation that preceded Indeed. him. And I, and, and I thought about it, and I was like, no, I, I was like, wow, I, I can't believe that uh, we'd only seen him four times. Have you he heard was, a cause of death? Uh, I haven't. No. No, I haven't. Uh-huh. Okay. Only 68, right? Yeah, 68 yeah. years yeah. old. Right. He yeah. was one of the best things in that Romeo and Juliet. That was a you know, very right. controversial production. It sure was. It yeah. sure was. Yeah. Yeah. That's a euphemism, but yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh what else have we got for first act closers? Anything else that we want to talk about? Uh, My Fair Lady is an interesting case. It is, isn't it? Go ahead, Michael. Well, uh, because I think that for some productions, the intermission has been moved. Right. Yeah. Um, Uh In the original, it's uh, it takes place after the embassy ball. uh, And 
in more some more recent productions, uh, it takes place after the previous scene where they uh, they're all headed off to the embassy ball, and I think um, that I've read that one of the reasons why the the decision to have it after the ball in the original production was partly because of the sets uh, and the way that sets worked in those days. Um, whereas now that's uh, less of an issue because they have so much more ability to change sets very quickly and mechanized, you know, mechanized movement of sets, et cetera. And et cetera. sets tend to be simpler looking too. Well, so. that too. Yeah. <laughs> Although not always. I mean, no, no, no. Yeah. That's why I said tend, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Baby has a very smart first act curtain because uh, what happens is um, one of the women hears, um, feels the baby kicking in her stomach and, and uh, hears the heartbeat and, mm. um, and, and that's that's very dramatic when that happens for the first time. That's when it really becomes real. That's something coming and hopefully something good uh, <laughs> in, in a few more months. And um, so uh, when, if you're doing a show about pregnancy and birth, that's the perfect first act curtain to have. It's a very smart idea to do that. Hair. We haven't talked about hair. Uh, <laughs> maybe dramatically it doesn't make much sense, but I'll tell you, that's one of the most talked about first act curtains, at least it was <laughs> at the time. I guess today it doesn't have the quite the power, but nevertheless, believe me, way back then, uh, when people talked about hair, it was the first act curtain that they mentioned first. Yes. So Nikki Juven in our uh, chat is talking about the Wells Fargo wagon for Music Man. Well, what's so wonderful about Music Man is you see Winthrop come alive for the first time. And uh, that is mm. so terrific. Um, that uh, It's what makes um, Marion fall in love with Harold because uh, he, he has made this kid come alive. She's been trying so hard to get him to get out of his uh, misery for not having a father. And suddenly he has a surrogate father. And, um, and so making him happy, she doesn't even concentrate on the fact that what's going to happen when there is no band but at that moment in time she's just so grateful that uh, that's happened and as Ken Mandelbaum pointed out uh, that's when she tears the page out of the book and uh, that would would implicate that Harold is a phony and as Ken pointed out and I think it's a very wise observation she's a librarian and for Mm. her to tear a page Mm. out of a book (laughs) is almost like committing a mortal sin. Yes. And I think that's a very, very smart observation on Ken's part. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't talked about Hadestown and why we build the wall, which is uh, Mm -hmm. quite a, uh, a, you know, written many, many years before uh, current events, but seemed to have played in and had uh, struck an an emotional chord with uh, many people both in and out of the theater. You bet. You bet. Uh, And um, we don't have the second act beginning with Mexico paying for it either, but uh, that's another story. Um, Very, very effective ending. And um, I I vividly remember being so uncomfortable in my seat at New York Theater Workshop where they built these very jerry-rigged um, bleachers um, is yeah. the best way of putting it. I, I, I can't even describe, but uh, they were rickety and I was scared to death. It was all going to collapse and what have you. But at that moment, I forgot that I was in such a precarious situation because the drama that came through there was so pungent. Uh, the you will be found from dear Evan Hansen. I, I was such a huge, 
uh, emotional pickup for me, both seeing it at Second Stage and on Broadway. Uh, uh, I think pr- possibly the the best song in in that uh, in that production. Uh, the "You Will Be Found" thing kind of really tied everything up and gave us such uh, such tremendous hope. And then we still hadn't thought about what's going to happen in the second act of Dear Evan Hansen. Right. Sure. Yeah, I agree entirely with that. Uh, though, of course, my favorite song is the uh, one where uh, the kids in the truck, uh, having such a good truck. time in the truck. Yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is not knowing how his life is going to change. All he, you know, he's he's naive, of course, and as all kids are at that point in time, and uh, just not aware that um, the seriousness of what's happening. But that's for another discussion. It's just I love that song so much. Whenever I have the opportunity to talk so big, about so it, small. I always do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I just love talking talking about it so uh michael anything else to add for act one closers i think that's great to end on a newer show i'm glad you mentioned some of the recent ones mm-hmm. all right so uh let's wrap it up for today before we get going at our try that one more time before we get going. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I've taken you for granted for so you out and I never knew anything at all I never knew anything at all I will never understand how all the world misjudged you When I have always known how lucky I must be I will never understand how I kept from going crazy Just waiting there till you came home to me Now look at me, now that you're finally here I know I was right to wait And everyone else was so wrong For so long All the wasted time All the million hours Years on top of years Still too proud to cry The day 
thing. 